With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome into Double Stint, Sports Car 365's Sports Car Racing Podcast in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine. John DeGeese joins me from Chicago. And oh my goodness, John, after a fallow period, we have so much sports car racing to talk about on the show this week. European Le Mans Series at Barcelona. The Fanatec GT World Challenge Europe, powered by AWS Endurance Cup, then was racing at Monza over the weekend. Also had the, the uh, opening round, as it turned out, of the NLS season at the Nürburgring. So buckle up. We've got a whole lot to cover here. Yeah, it's going to be a packed show. It's uh, fun to have so much racing to discuss. We also have a ton of news to get to a lot from the world of LMDH, what manufacturers might be out there closing in on perhaps an announcement that that's the direction that they'll be heading. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Uh, Some more on scheduling for the rest of the season, news from the WEC, and more still to come. So let's get started here, and we'll begin with the European Le Mans Series season opener at Barcelona. I think we talked a little bit about this last week or the week before, just about the strength of some of these entries in LMP2, especially from some of these teams like WRT that are jumping into the prototype ranks. Yeah, they've dipped their toes in the water in the past, but they've got their eyes on a prototype future with LMDH coming down the road. And my goodness, what a great start to their LMP2 career, at least as a full-time entrant with a dominant run, WRT picking up the win at Barcelona over the weekend. Yeah, with Luis Delatrez, Robert Kubica, and Yifi Yi. Um, really, you can't really say much more than dominant. Um, um, Delatrez took the lead early on uh, from Roman Rusinov. I think it was in the opening 20 minutes of the race, and really that the Belgian car didn't uh, ter- miss a wheel from there. And um, it was a real dominant effort, um, commanding win. I know, again, it was uh, interesting to, to watch how well this GT3 team really adapted to LMP2 racing. Okay, they had a one-off LMP2 outing a couple of years ago at Spa. It was with the previous generation LMP2 um, car. This was obviously the first race of the new detuned LMP2s of, under the new regulations. They weren't fully under the new regs yet. Uh, uh, we have, we understand. I don't think the, the cars are running in Lama bodywork trim as they will be later in the year. But um, still, um, plenty of action nonetheless, even though WRT put on a commanding performance. And you look at the driver lineup, and it's excellent. Um, and and this team is is so accomplished in GT racing. I think it's easy to say, yeah, you know, you would expect them to have some success. But then again, the LMP2 grid in ELMS is incredibly strong. There's some very established teams that run in this series, and. To be honest, I, I'm not surprised that they won, but I am surprised at how easy they made it look. Yeah, and it was made a little bit easier thanks to some issues from some other cars, most notably the the number 26 G-Drive um, Oris um, that started on pole with Nick DeVries. Um, Roman Rusinov took the opening stint. Then they also they ended up having a couple penalties in the race, um, and that, sort of, that set them back quite a bit. Um, uh, DeVries ended up, I think, finishing fourth overall at the end of the race, but um, it still wasn't good enough to, to match the outright pace from WRT. And then also, when you think of ELMS, you think of United Autosports. Yes. And one of their cars had an off in the first lap with Nico Jamin, 
Um, he went into the, the gravel trap that basically took him out of contention right there. The other car showed some really strong pace with Phil Hansen. I was really surprised by him. Um, this was the first weekend where he was sort of playing the, the leader of the, of the driver lineup. You know, he was used to be the silver driver both in the LMS and WEC, but he's been upgraded to gold um, during the off season, or I think it was actually for 2020, but the way WEC worked through the calendar, actually, no, it was for 2021, but um, nonetheless, um, Phil did an outstanding job in his opening stint, um, but um, the co his co-drivers didn't necessarily live up to the, the potential there, and they ended up finishing, uh, I believe, second on the road. So um, definitely uh, uh, third on the road because the Panis car was ended up getting second at the end with uh, a great stint by Gabe, Gabriel Albury. So, um, yeah, I, I would have to say that on paper, I think WRT is looking like an early championship favorite already. Um and um, it, it just goes to show that, you know, a good team is a good team and it doesn't really matter what you run. And if you have a strong driver lineup, great engineering and, and the like, um, that you can get it done in whatever car you, you enter. I have to imagine this gets the attention of a couple of these manufacturers that have their eye on LMDH, maybe in a less than full factory capacity. And I think that's what WRT is targeting here, right? They're, they want to be involved and have some factory affiliation, but be able to, to run a program competing at a pretty high level, right? Absolutely. I think this is more or less a precursor to an Audi LMDH effort for them. They're longstanding partners with Audi in the GT ranks, so it would make most sense for something to be like that. Um, they're running an Audi factory driver, Robin Frins, in the WEC this year, so that's another hint kind of right there as it is as well. So I think this is the next two seasons for WRT is probably about getting experience in prototypes and really um, trying to learn the ropes and Really, quite frankly, it didn't take him long to learn the ropes. That was very evident uh, based on the results from over the weekend. LMP2M, new class to the ELMS. It's, um, well, maybe go through where this class came from for folks who, who are unaware and then uh, talk about the, the group that put together the win uh, from the ultimate team, um, uh, ultimately able to, to, no pun intended, able to come home fifth overall, which I think is pretty remarkable. Yeah, that car was running fourth overall in the closing stages before um, Nick DeVries made the move on, I think it was Matthew LaHaye that uh, that brought the car home at the end. Um, ultimately, oh, again, <laughs> not our pun to them, <laughs> um, it was a, a quiet effort, I think. It, it, I didn't really see any major obstacles in the race. I think one of the early pre-race favorites, um, Dragon Speed, which was also in the class, um, they had a clutch issue at the start um, with Hendrick Hedman at the wheel. Um, he had two spins and might have had the clutch might have actually broke after the, the incidents there. But um, that was definitely a car, you know, looking at the prologue and looking at the opening um, few practice sessions that would have been a contender, not just for uh, the LMP2 pro-am class honors but for an overall podium finish um, ricky taylor was um uh, the third driver in that lineup with ben hanley and, and and hendrick but unfortunately they were the first retirement in the race but um going back to your question about that class it's basically um an, a regular lmp2 lineup but with those who are bronze rated at least one driver in that lineup has to be a bronze rated driver so um, it came about through a series of regulation changes over the winter. Initially, um, ELMS and WEC was going to mandate a 
bronze driver for the entire field for each car overall that led to a lot of backlash um, when the FIA put out the bulletin I think that caught the WEC a bit by surprise at the time um, they backpedaled a little bit and decided to make a dedicated AM subclass as you would sort of call it um, for this and we saw this in the Asian Le Mans series as well um, during February um, so I would sort of call it as a more or less a subclass, but still a separate podium, um, a full podium ceremonies there for the program runners and a, a great way to recognize um, bronze rated drivers. Two other classes to chronicle. GTE was dominated by Iron Lynx. Matteo Corsoni, uh, Reno Mastronardi, and Miguel Molina took the win by over a lap in that Ferrari. LMP3, though, came down to the wire. Cool racing, pulling out a win in dramatic fashion. It, it uh, came down to the final 30 minutes. Yeah, Matt Bell made a late charge, um, got by Alain Berg in the DKR engineering, um, uh, Duquesne there in the closing minutes. Um, um, Berg ended up falling back even further in the field, but then um, there was another car that, that came on really strong in the closing minutes, nearly got by Bell. I think it would have only taken a few minutes, a few more, few more laps maybe to, to make that happen, but um, ultimately, Cool uh, held on for the class win. Overall impressions from the first ELMS weekend of 2021? I think it was a strong field, um, 41 cars, um, lots of action, lots of prototypes, um, great great track. It was great to see these cars back at Barcelona um, after that round was canceled and replaced by a second edition at Paul Ricard last year um, due to COVID-19. So um, this was a long-awaited return for ACO-style um, racing to um, Circuit de, de Catalunya. So um, overall, I, I think it would put on a, a great weekend, great prologue to kick off the the, the season that happened earlier that week and um, really looking forward to the rest of the season. Other endurance racing happening over the weekend, as mentioned, Fanatec GT World Challenge Europe, powered by AWS Endurance Cup, racing at Monza and doing so in mixed conditions. Track started off dry, but some rain came throughout the course of that event. Our Dan Lloyd was on site covering for Sports Car 365. It was a, a, a victory for the Dynamic Motorsport Porsche overall with Christian Engelhart, Matteo Cairoli, and Klaus Bockler teaming up for the win. How did they get it done? It seemed like it was a race with plenty of ebbs and flows. It was a crazy race. Um, like you said, Ryan, uh, mixed conditions, uh, wet to dry, dry to wet. It never really got completely wet where, you know, it was like complete monsoon. I think the start of the race was probably closest to that, but um, the track dried out. And I think that was the, really the biggest problem where the majority of teams were on wet weather Pirelli tires and on a dry track that doesn't mix very well. And we saw a lot of punctures, um, lots of cars with torn up bodywork, um, trying to push the, push everything to the limits and trying to optimize their strategy of not having to make an extra pit stop um, in the three hour race for uh, a tire change. And um, I think what really benefited the dynamic Porsche team was the fact that it was a Porsche. It seemed like the Porsches didn't have as many punctures as the other competitors. Um, uh, it, it really hit the Mercedes, the Audis. Um, um, I think the most uh, thinking about which which teams um, suffered from punctures. But 
um, yeah, it was an unfortunate circumstance. Lamborghinis as well um, had some issues um, as well. And I know there were some very unhappy team principals post-race. Um, even Vincent Voss, um, who was following the race from Barcelona just after the ELMS race ended, his team won over there. And then he turned on the, the live stream to watch the, the Monza opener there. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I really, you sort of have to feel for the, the tire manufacturer, the partner in the series in Pirelli, because it was such a challenging condition where there, you know, there's no intermediates allowed in the series. Teams tinker with their own tire pressures, even though Pirelli outlines, a you know, recommended pressure and, and, and whatnot in, in those regards. So, uh, you know, I don't know what it really all came down to it was definitely a talking point in the race and a lot of people were talking that maybe it could have been de de partially debris on the track also um with the changing conditions but nonetheless the the the, fur, the the porsche seemed to really best suited for those conditions yeah was it three of the of the top five were porsches if i'm remembering that correctly it was something to that effect at least a lot of porsches doing well over the course of that race and, and that's kind of traditional right in any kind of uh, mixed conditions. It does seem like the 911 does fare quite well traditionally. Uh, in third overall was our winner in the silver category, Emil Frey Racing, running Lamborghinis once again. Uh, Ricardo Feller, Alex Fontana, and Rolf Nyken teaming up to get the win there. And it shouldn't necessarily come as a surprise to see a silver lined up that far up the order, but certainly they put their their best effort forward and, and were rewarded, not just with the class win, but uh, the overall podium as well. Yeah, and I believe this is actually the first time that a silver cup pairing, a silver cup lineup, actually ended up on the overall podium. Wow. Believe it or not, so um, I think that really came down to a race of attrition. There was a lot of cars that were set back with the issues with the tires, and um, ultimately the the Emil Frey um, for uh, Lamborghini benefited the most. And the winner in the Pro-Am ranks came from Garage 59, Aston Martin, the manufacturer there. So for a whole lot more coverage from all the action at Monza, be sure to check out sportscar365.com. There's also a post-race notebook with some good nuggets from uh, over the weekend. And again, Dan Lloyd on site doing a great job with the coverage for us there. Uh, a lot of racing going on at the Nürburgring with the Second scheduled round of the NLS. The first one, though, canceled due to inclement weather. I think it was snow, if memory mm -hmm. serves. Uh, so NLS 2 becomes the season opener, and it is the uh, German Manthai team that uh, picks up the win, but they had to overcome some adversity to get it done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the number 911 Porsche ended up having a drive-through penalty about midway through the race um, due to not having not meeting the minimum pit stop time. Um, during one of their stops. Ultimately, that didn't uh, affect things as much as we, we thought initially. Um, the Phoenix Racing um, Audis were very strong early on, but the, each of the, the GT3 cars that are running in the SP9 Pro class, they're all sort of on different strategies at one point. In terms of their fuel, there's, a, I think, a minimum uh, pit stop time if you take on uh, a full load of fuel or, or, or of half a tank or less of fuel and um, ultimately the, the Monthai car was on a bit of a different strategy than the others they ended up coming out on top at the end and um, really impressive effort for, for that, that team with, with Michael Christensen, Lars Kern and Kevin Estra at yeah, the wheel That's right and this is where my three Porsches in the top five stat came from, I put it in the wrong race ah, Yes. Uh, so that happened in the, in the NLS race my apologies there. But uh, again, more coverage can be found of the second NOS 
scheduled NLS race of the season, which is in fact the first one, still confusingly called NLS 2. Uh, that is up at sportscar365.com if you want more on that race. How about we get to some news here, John? Let's go to LMDH news, starting with one brand that has certainly been around the table in the discussions for quite some time, and that would be Lamborghini. There was a time we thought they were definitely in. There was a time we then thought they had changed their mind and were definitely out. But it seems the pendulum has swung back again in some really interesting quotes from the head of Lamborghini Squadra Corsa, Giorgio Sana, on the prospects of a Lamborghini LMDH program, possibly for as soon as 2024. Yes, that's what um, Giorgio told our Dan Lloyd over the weekend at Monza, um, confirming what we had believed to be the case in that Lamborghini is certainly in reevaluating their participation in LMDH. Um, I think we had talked about it in previous shows that it sort of had gone quiet around this time last year um, when their proposal to run a, to, to operate an LMDH programs was sort of shot down at the time. It didn't look too favorable. And then all of a sudden the floodgates opened with other manufacturers entering. And I think um, it's really led um, Lamborghini to sort of look at, hey, this is something we need to do if, you know, the likes of Ferrari and um, Porsche and 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 uh, uh, Audi are, are in the, the top prototype class along with Peugeot and Toyota and, and, and the like. And so what we do know is that if this will happen, it will definitely be a customer-only program. So expect it to be similar to what the Audi effort is right now from what we believe and for what LMDH will be. And also, like you said, Ryan, it wouldn't be until 2024. Um, Giorgio basically ruled out 23 as being too soon for this to happen. Um, I think it's basically because they're just they haven't made the decision yet. It's um, still it's a bit tight right now for any manufacturer that hasn't made a decision internally to be ready for the 2023 season. So I think this might be one of those um, candidates that could be on the grid in the second year of the regulations when they, they get going still again, nothing official, nothing a hundred percent, but I'd say it's looking pretty good. Um, most certainly for, for lamp to see Lamborghini join the fray. That's really exciting. And it's just great to hear that, the conversation seems to have shifted because there was, again, a time where they definitely had been shot down at the board level, and for whatever reason, that that has reversed. And you mentioned the flurry of announcements of different manufacturers that are going to be involved, whether it's with LMH or LMDH. That adds some appeal, I would assume, like you mentioned, for Lamborghini to be able to test themselves against the brands that that have uh, come out publicly and said, yes, we're going to do it. But notably, there's also been a change at the helm of Lamborghini, and perhaps that had some impact in this too. Yeah, I think that was a big factor um, there. Um, Stefan Winkleman is now back on board as the CEO of Lamborghini, in addition to his duties at Bugatti. Um, he was with Lamborghini, I think, through 2016 before Stefano Domenichelli took over that helm. Now um, Domenichelli is is back, is an F1 as the the series boss over there. So um, it's it's all changed in the last few months, and I, I think having Winkleman back in the helm of Lamborghini is certainly going to help their chances of making this a reality. One of the conversation pieces surrounding Audi and Porsche, both out of the the VAG group, uh, Volkswagen Audi group, talking about their potential involvement in LMDH and then their confirmed involvement is that they would be sharing 
some of the architecture, namely the chassis, a, a, a shared LMP2 chassis supplier. Do you get the sense that, that Lamborghini would follow suit from some of the sister brands? That's a very good question, and I honestly don't know. Um, you know, when you think of Lamborghini, you think of Italian, mm-hmm. you think of uh, Dallara. You know, Dallara played a part in, in helping them build the, the GT3 Huracan. Um, it would make a lot of sense to do a deal directly with the Italian constructor, but as we know with Porsche and Audi, they're likely to go with Multimatic. Um, could Multimatic ultimately take on the third constructor? I think it's possible. Um, it would result in a lot of shared components between all three of the Volkswagen Group companies, if that's the case. So I wouldn't want to say one way or another, but I think it's fair to fair to, us, to assume that it'll be one or the other. I think you know the chances of a, a, a Liget-built Lamborghini or a uh, 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 an Orica-built Lamborghini is probably slim at this point. And my last question would be, do you anticipate this would have any impact on Lamborghini's GT3 racing activities? My sense is that's still a big core component of what Lamborghini's Quadracorsa is all about, and this would come on top of it, but uh, is that the way you read it as well? Correct, yeah. So um, GT3 remains a customer program as they have been doing, even though they have offer factor, some factory drivers and some support on, on that end, but I don't see that changing at all. Um, they're going to be rolling out with a, a new double Evo. I guess it's going to be called Evo 2 uh, version of the Huracan GT3 in 2023. So um, if plans are already there for that, I, I don't see it impacting um, the GT programs at all. This would just be adding the uh, being in addition to uh, what is already Lamborghini's motorsport activities. Let's shift then from one manufacturer, Lamborghini, to another, General Motors. They've been part of our conversations here, it seems like, for the last month or two, whether that would be on the the GTD Pro side of things or their potential involvement on LMDH. And in both cases, John, it sounds like decisions are getting closer. Uh, at the time of, of the press conference that uh, is it Mark Stilo, is that how you pronounce his name? Stilo? I believe so, yes. Stilo, um, who, who heads up uh, GM's Motorsports side of things um with uh with the he was talking about uh, road racing in particular indycar and then sports cars came up and he was saying at the time this was a few days ago that they're about 45 days away from making an announcement so i think within about five weeks we'll have some idea about the direction that gm could be going both on the lmdh front as well as uh, with the corvette and gtd pro yeah and i think it's pretty well set already it's just not yet been announced. Um, I got the feeling that Sebring was around the deadline that they needed to make a decision internally, and I believe they will be moving forward with an LMDH program. Most likely, it would probably be a Cadillac-branded program for North America, at least. I don't know about anything globally, but um, it's looking to be that way. Mark didn't didn't say that out directly in the quotes during this uh, media availability ahead of the Barber IndyCar weekend, but um, I, I think that it's definitely looking strongly in encouraging that they will continue in the top class in IMSA competition. And then in terms of GTD Pro, um, I think it's pretty much a given as well that it, it, 
that the Corvette will be allowed to compete in um, GTD Pro with some modifications. Uh, Mark said they've been working a lot on a conversion package um, to make that happen. So if work's already underway on a, on a, on a kit, uh, per se, to convert the, the existing GTE spec Corvette C8R into something that's closer to a GT3 specification, I think it's safe to say that they'll be on the grid next year in that class as well. So um, good news all around, I, w- I, would have to, I would have to say. Well, to close out the LMDH discussion before we move on to different topics, who else might be out there? We've got the the programs that are already confirmed. We've talked just now about GM and Lamborghini. We know that uh, there have been as many as, what, 16 or 17 brands that have been involved in discussions in, in one form or another uh, with the technical working group. Uh, who else might be waiting in the wings evaluating LMDH that we could hear from yet this year? Yeah, we've had a previous story about BMW um, looking at LMDH, and I believe that's the other manufacturer right now that is seriously um, evaluating that could be as soon soon as 2023. Um, like you said, there are a lot of manufacturers that have been in these working group meetings. Um, there's always been a lot of people asking what's happening to Ford. Um, quite frankly, it's been really quiet on that front. I, I don't think there's anything in the works, but I, I could be mistaken. Um, also, we know that Lexus has been seriously evaluating it, although that's gone a little quiet as well um, since Sebring. Not quite sure their um, their status on, on that front. Um, Hyundai is another one that's been making the rounds. We know that Brian Herta has been in meetings, um, technical working group meetings with on behalf of the, the Korean automaker. Whether that's something for short-term or long-term, I would have to bet maybe something more long-term and, and not something for 2023. But certainly, when you start thinking of all the different manufacturers, you know, having five or six all set for the first year and maybe add in one or two more by 2024, that's going to be incredible. And um, I'm really looking forward to those prospects once we get final confirmation on some of these other manufacturers. Yeah, exactly. Really exciting potential for LMDH, and it's it's nice that the momentum seems to have carried through even a global pandemic. I'm not sure we were all that sanguine that that was going to be the case if you go back about a year or so, but I've been pleasantly surprised with the continued optimism that surrounds these regulations. Let's get to a different topic now, and we've spent a lot of time in the last year or so on this show talking about schedule changes, and it does sound like we might be done with them, at least as far as IMSA is concerned. That's at least what John Doonan is saying. What, what do you make of his comments that they feel pretty confident in the schedule that they have for the rest of the year moving forward? Yeah, I think that's really good news, especially considering you know all the amount of changes that have gone on. Um, you know, just to get to where we are right now. I think he said there were six revisions in last year's schedule. So far, there's been three revisions, um, one that was made even before the start of this calendar year Mm -hmm. with the two California races being moved to the end of September or middle of September and end of September um, with Laguna Seca and Long Beach, respectively. But uh, since then, we've had news that CTMP has been canceled and replaced with the second um, round at Watkins Glen. And then also the Detroit race has been pushed back by one week. Um, so it fits into the IndyCar weekend um, um, due to the, uh, the the postponement of the 24 hours of Le Mans back, back into August. So um, what we're seeing here is 
I think, stability from, from IMSA's standpoint. Um, the only round that I would sort of say could be a question mark might be Detroit, just because I've seen a, a big spike in COVID cases in, in Michigan lately. But then again, it's April, and we're talking about a race that's going to be two months away. So a lot can still change. That's just pure speculation on my front. I haven't heard anything from anybody else. But um, yeah, you just have to sort of trace where things are at. But at the same time, vaccinations are going to be at, at, continue to um, to be at a very high rate in the U.S. And I, I think by the time we do get to summer, things are going to be in a much better position in America. Um, Europe's a different story, and I have my own concerns still in some of the series over there. But in the U.S. side of things with IMSA, I think it's definitely looking good. And, and John's comments made, uh, made it sound pretty reassuring as well. And regarding the prospects of Detroit, that obviously affects the IndyCar side of things. And I was down at Barber last weekend doing some IndyCar-related things, and uh, that, was a, that was a talking point. I would say there's not a ton of, of concern within the paddock about Detroit. Most of the IndyCar concern seems to be around Toronto, as you would expect, with so many mm-hmm. Canadian events being affected at the moment. Um, so it, it does have the, the feel that, that there is still confidence that that could happen, but what the crowd situation is going to look like is very much up in the air. And I think everyone is monitoring what's happening in Michigan very closely because, yeah, it is two months away, but you're going to have to make a call on this before then. And uh, I think everyone is paying close attention to seeing how that's going to look, uh, trying to prognosticate what it's going to look like when we get to the scheduled weekend for Detroit. A couple other topics here. Uh, We got some news that is a bit unfortunate regarding the WEC. We were hoping to see the Glickenhaus team debut with the rest of the hypercar field, um, with the Toyota specifically, at uh, Spa to open the WEC season, but it does not look like that is going to be possible. Jim Glickenhaus coming out and saying that they do not think they can be there for Spa. Uh, what's at the root of this next delay? We've had a couple of them at this point from this program, and is there any reason to be concerned? Yeah, I think maybe we are starting to reach a point to be a little concerned on this program. Um, there's the, the, the latest delay is is more or less related to the car not yet completing an endurance test. Um, they had planned at Motorland Aragon. Things have been delayed there. Um, the good news is they do have two chassis now. They've built up a, a second car. Um, they've overcome the accident um, with Gustavo Menezes earlier um, in the in the month. I think it was actually March, late March when it happened. But um, they've done some wind tunnel testing at Sauber, and now they're in the process of finalizing the aero um, package they'll use for the next five years, as once you lock in everything, it's locked in. Um, unlike what LMP1 rules were, were, where you were able to have two or three different aero packages at times, um, sometimes every year if you could change it. Um, it's a little different with these uh, rules now. So with under hypercar. So I understand Jim's you know point, Jim Glickenhaus's point of trying to make sure things are all steady and and set with the car and not rush into a homologation um but that's basically their their position there is making them ultimately delay their debut until the eight hours of portimao um, which is currently scheduled as the second round of this wec season in june um, on the original lama date so um, those cars will not be at spa that's reduced the field to 35 entries for the the belgian season opener we have a story up on sports car 365 on that with some more lineups confirmed in the last couple days um, but expanding on the glickenhaus thing a bit too it was interesting in the conversation with jim 
Um, he revealed that they're not confirmed for the Fuji or Bahrain races either, the final two races of the WEC season. So this very well could be a three-race program for this year with Portimao, Monza, and Le Mans only. So that's where it causes a little bit – look, this is where it causes a little bit of concern, at least on my end, you know, thinking that this program was initially – confirmed and all set that they were going to have two cars season um there was a lot of excitement building a lot of the a lot of um, fan support and whatnot and now things are starting to unravel a little bit and quite frankly it leaves me a little bit concerned yep me too i really want this to succeed it, it would be great to have you know the plucky privateer that can take the fight to to the big manufacturer that's that's definitely the appeal of this and and i think the team has done well in playing that up in in their social media and things like that I'll echo your thoughts, though. I mean, there is no reason to rush into a homologation. You don't want to get stuck with something that's suboptimal, and you certainly don't want to homologate the car before you've done a true endurance test. So I understand where they're coming from, but, uh, yeah, we, we hope to see them at Portimao for sure um, because uh, having Toyotas basically racing amongst themselves once again with the one-grandfathered LMP1 uh, doesn't quite have the appeal that having at least another hypercar constructor would have had uh definitely takes a little bit of the luster off of the season open don't you think yeah i I would i would think so for sure um just three cars in the class so it's not going to be as exciting but then again it'll still be the start of a new era with the hypercar platform with toyota so yep still things to look forward to and we we hope the best and wish the best to the glickenhaus folks and and hopefully they can get uh, that test in and the homologation complete and we'll see them in Portugal and then for the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Uh, we do have a little bit of racing coming up this weekend. The 24-hour series is in action with a 12-hour race at uh, Paul Ricard this weekend. So if you need a sports car racing fix, that's where you should turn for that. A whole lot more on all the stories we discussed, plus others we didn't get to on the show up at sportscar365.com. And I'm sure by the time this is posted, we'll have even more content up there for you. So keep checking the website. Also, we'd love to hear from you for a future show. If you've got questions or comments, you can submit them with the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter or go to the the, uh, podcast page that houses this week's podcast. Go down to the bottom and you can use the comment section there to submit a question or comment for us on a future show as well. That's going to do it for us this week. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast and tuning in. And we'll talk to you next week with our next edition of Double Stint. (laughs) 